0: Well, that passage should be pretty self-explanatory. Having read it, I'm sure you understand everything written therein, right? <laughs> Revelation is a, is a difficult book. We are endeavoring to make our way through. There is much that is complicated and difficult to understand. But what we're trying to do as best as we can is look at the main symbolism, at least, and the main imagery, and discern what is intended by these things, that it would be profitable to us. And what we have been looking at uh, over the last number of weeks is the opening of the first five seals of a scroll that we were introduced to in chapter 5. And by way of review, for those of you who missed it, and and just to refresh your memories, this scroll contains everything that's going to come to pass between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And it is Jesus himself who opens the seals. Symbolizing that that he is the Lord of history and, and he is him through whom God is bringing to pass all of his judgments and all of his redemptive purposes. And so we have seen what has transpired in the first five seals and today we're looking at the sixth and the seventh seals. Let's jump right in. The sixth and the seventh seals, which I just read for you. What, what happens is the sixth and the seventh seals are open. The sixth and the seventh seals contain God's judgment and vengeance at the end of all things. Last week we saw the martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were calling out for God to vindicate Himself as the just judge. That to vindicate God's claim that this universe is a moral universe in which wickedness is held to account, in which all wrongs are eventually righted. They were calling out for God to vindicate Himself and to judge. And they were calling out for God, as we saw last week, to avenge their blood. They had been killed and. And retributive justice is not wrong. It's just not ours to exact one upon another in terms of personal vendetta. But we entrust judgment to God and we trust that He will take action to bring justice to those who escape it in the here and now. And to bring ultimate justice even upon those whom temporal justice is served upon in this life. They were calling out for these things at the opening of the fifth seal. And in the sixth and seventh seals, we we see God bringing these things to pass in the world. It's fairly obvious that God's judgment and vengeance is contained in these seals. As I said, because it happens immediately on the heels of how long, O Lord. Secondly, there is the explicit phrase in chapter 6 and verse 16, where, where people call on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So this is obviously the outpouring of God's wrath and the outpouring of what is, was called the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus pouring out His wrath upon His enemies. And then... The symbolism of chapter 8 and verse 5 also indicates to us that this is God's judgment and God's vengeance being poured out upon the world. It says, The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In revelation of this stuff continually symbolizes God's judgment. So we see plainly that the sixth and seventh seals contain God's judgment and vengeance. Now some might say, fair enough, it contains God's judgment and vengeance. But this is not God's judgment and vengeance at the end of all things. After all, we're only in chapter 6 and 7. And there's so many more chapters to come. This can't be the end of all things. This must be some kind of temporal judgment. Not the judgment at the end of all things. Well, let me give you a few reasons why we can know that this is actually at the end of all things. First, is that though people try to hide in verse 15, they don't successfully hide. In chapter 6 and verse 15, it it says this. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves... And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now if this is a temporal judgment, then apparently Jesus comes looking for them, and can't find them, because they have successfully hidden themselves. And they are not actually defeated, but they are able to stand. Look at verse 17. The great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Well, apparently them. Because if this is a temporal judgment, they're still standing at the end of chapter 6 here. So... First of all, this would give us a very pathetic portrayal of Christ coming and rendering an unsuccessful judgment where people are actually able to hide from Him and are actually able to be standing after chapter 6. Number 2, the imagery from chapter 6 verses 12 to 14 about the great earthquake and the sun becoming black as sackcloth, the moon becoming like blood, the stars of the sky falling and so forth corresponds to Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31, which describe the return of Christ. It says here in Matthew 24, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is the end of all things. And we see all of these signs in the heavens the the darkness and the stars falling, and so on and so forth, at the end of all things in Matthew 24. And we see the same thing in Revelation chapter 6, 12 to 14. There is correspondence between the imagery that we see in Matthew 24. 29 to 31, and Revelation 6, 12 to 14, which describe the return of Christ. And in case anyone's inclined to say in Matthew 24 that, again, this is some sort of temporal judgment and not the end of all things, we just look right before what it says in Matthew 24, at Matthew 24, verse uh, 25 and following. Or, sorry, 26 and following. Look, if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, He is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, there is going to be not this secret temporal judgment um, supposedly described in Matthew 24. This is the return of Christ, where every eye will see Him and where He will render the judgment that He intends at the end of all things. Matthew 24, the section that I read for you, is describing the return of Christ, the public, visible return of Christ to judge. And we're drawing on the same imagery in Revelation chapter 6. This is consistent with Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 where we read this. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Or Psalm chapter 2, where we see after the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder, God responds by saying to the Messianic Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What we see in Psalm 2 is this promise of eschatological judgment upon the rulers of the earth who gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. They may not experience God's judgment temporally, They may spend 40 years or 50 years or 60 years reigning and ruling over a kingdom of the earth in the here and now. They may live in opulence and wealth and they may die at a ripe old age. And because of that, they will say, as Peter the Apostle tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Listen, Psalm 2 essentially tells us there is a day coming where the wrath of the messianic son will be poured out upon the kings of the earth who gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And he whom God has set in Zion will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel There is a day coming where the wrath of the Lamb will be outpoured. And guess what? This is what we see in Revelation chapter 6. The great ones, the generals, the kings of the earth. They are hiding because now is the reckoning. This is the outpouring of the wrath of the Lamb. This is the eschatological promise being fulfilled. That at the end of all things, they don't get away with it. And they gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. But His anointed shows up with a rod of iron and smashes them to pieces. This is what is going on in Revelation chapter 6. Then as I pointed out to you before, one more reason why we know that this is at the end of all things. As I pointed out to you before, the symbolism of 8.5, this phrase... Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake appear at various times in Revelation. And they always signal the end of a cycle of visions which contain the whole of human history from Christ's first coming to his second. And so in 8.6, we will begin again looking at the span between Christ's first coming and his second. And then we'll see this same imagery that's in 8.5. We'll see it again in 12.19. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail, after the seventh trumpet blows and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So we've gone through, in the seven seals, we've gone through everything between Christ's first coming to his second coming. Then the cycle ends in Revelation 8.5 marked by this phrase, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, so on and so forth. And the cycle starts again in 8.6 and ends with the kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and we see that marker again saying, hey this cycle's over, another cycle of visions is going to start. So The sixth and the seventh seals, as I've already said, contain God's judgment and vengeance at the end of all things. That's what's going on in six and seven. However, you may have noticed as we were reading that the emphasis in this section of scripture is not actually on the judgment of the wicked, but is actually on the fate of God's people. Yes, Jesus is coming back. And there will be a reckoning for all of the evil done. Whether it was punished temporarily or whether it wasn't. There will be an ultimate reckoning. People will give an account to Jesus at the end of all things. And you need to understand that the wrath of the Lamb is coming. You need to understand that there is a judgment. That the face of Him who sits on the throne will one day behold you. You need to understand that that's in this passage. But you may have noticed that it's actually not the emphasis in the sixth and the seventh seals. The emphasis in the sixth and the seventh seals is actually on the fate of God's people. Notice first that those who belong to God will be spared. Now, without getting into yet what these 144,000 are, or who they are, and who the innumerable multitude are in heaven, it's obvious from reading this passage, even if you don't understand who those people are, it's obvious to understand that they are God's people. They're on the same team. right? They're not the enemies of God in this passage. And notice that they are spared. What are they spared from? Well, not war, famine, persecution... And all of the things contained in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th seals, which again re-emphasizes that we're not talking about temporal judgment in in the 6th seal because the temporal judgments have already been being poured out all along. The 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th seals contain all of these things. These people, these 144,000 and the innumerable multitude in heaven are not spared from war. They're not spared from famine. They're not spared from poverty. They're not spared from sickness. They're not spared from death. They're not spared from persecution. What are they spared from? They're spared from the wrath of the Lamb. When this eschatological day of reckoning comes and the Messianic Son comes looking for those who gathered themselves together against Him, this 144,000 are spared from that. The innumerable multitude in heaven are spared from that. That's what's going on here. Now this naturally raises the question, well, who are these people? Right? Those who belong to God in Revelation chapter 7 are one people of God comprised of believing Israelites and believing Gentiles. The 144,000 are said to be of the sons of Israel. That's Revelation 7 and verse 4. I take that as ethnic Jews. I take that as descendants of Israel. And yet, as Romans chapter 9 and verse 6 says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And Romans 9 tries to unfold and elucidate this concept that simply being a biological descendant of Israel doesn't actually make you a child of the promise it doesn't actually mean that you're saved many ethnic Jews will suffer the wrath of the Lamb and they will not be spared why? as John chapter 3 and verse 18 says they are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God What do you have to do on the last day, whether Jew or Gentile? What do you have to do on the last day to be condemned? Or prior to the last day to be condemned? What do you have to do to prepare yourself for condemnation? Nothing. John 3.16 is probably the most well-known verse in the whole Bible, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then it says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. What this means is that Jesus didn't, wasn't sent to be born in Bethlehem when everybody was doing fine. He was sent in order to bring them into condemnation. No, that's not, that's not why God sent Jesus into the world. He sent Jesus into the world that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what John 3.17 means. But then John 3.18 says this. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Listen. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. So when Jesus was born in Bethlehem those 2,000 years ago He wasn't born into a world that was doing fine. In which nobody was condemned. And if it wasn't for Jesus showing up we'd all be okay. No, He was born into a world where we were all already condemned. We were guilty. We were fallen. And Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the good news, but the bad news is that we're already condemned. And so many ethnic Jews will not be spared, but will suffer the wrath of the Lamb because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God, not all Israelites will be saved. but as Romans 11:5 puts it, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And these Israelites are called in, in Romans chapter 11 and verse 16 the first fruits. Interestingly that same phrase is used in Revelation 14 and verse 4, Speaking of this same 144,000 and they are called in that verse those who have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb So this 144,000 of the sons of Israel in Revelation chapter 7, represents the complete number. It's not a a literal number, like 144,001 can't be saved. But this this is 12 by 12, right? This is the number of completeness. The complete number of those from among Israel, who, as Romans 11, 5 puts it, have been chosen by grace, the remnant. They are the first fruits of those who have been redeemed from mankind. Since the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, right? As Romans 1 and verse 16 puts it. But if they are the first fruits, if this 144,000 is the first fruits of those redeemed from mankind, those believing Israelites, those believing sons of Israel, if they are the first fruits of those redeemed from mankind, As Revelation 14 and verse 4 calls them, then we should expect what? Many more. That's that's what's implied by first fruits. If I have a basket of apples and I say, hey, here's the first fruits, My, my, my tree just started to bring forth, and here's the first fruits. The very concept of first fruits implies and necessitates many more coming afterwards. And what do we see in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 after this description of the first fruits here? After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Well, there's the rest of them the first fruits and the rest of them. This harvest of the Gentiles from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Surely they're, they're redeemed from among mankind, are they not? Right? So the 144,000 are the first fruits, and here's the rest of them this harvest of the Gentiles redeemed from among mankind. So Revelation, chapter 7, gives us a picture of all the redeemed people of God comprised of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, one people of God in the place of two separate and formerly hostile people groups reconciled and united in Christ Jesus. As Ephesians 2, verse 11 and following puts it, Reconciled to God in one body through the cross. We Gentiles, having become partakers and citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. In the language of Ephesians chapter 2. Us Gentiles, who belong to Christ, having become Abraham's offspring. As per Galatians 3. The first fruits is the 144,000, because the gospel came, as Romans 1.16 puts it, first to the Jew. But then to the Gentile. And after the first fruits were gathered in, the rest are gathered in. And John sees this people of God, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, spared from the wrath of the Lamb. But not merely spared. Revelation 6 and 7 and 8, those sections that I read containing the sixth and seventh seals, is not just all about the wrath of the Lamb's coming, but believers will be spared. There's actually a great deal in here about the unspeakable blessings of those who belong to God. Not only will those who believe in Christ Jesus, whether ethnically Jewish or ethnically Gentile, not only will they be spared the wrath of the Lamb, but... They will be unspeakably blessed, just immeasurably blessed. Look at verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here is the fruition of all the promises coming to pass in and through Christ Jesus to the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles. Portrayed for us in Revelation chapter 7. One thing I desire, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever Ah, and now here we see them before the throne of God serve him day and night in his temple there they are always there always with God or they shall be my people and I shall be their God and I shall dwell with them again he who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. (laughs) They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Jesus said, I am the true bread from heaven. If anyone is thirst, let him come to me. And here they are, satisfied in the presence of God with no more hunger and no more thirst. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat Well, we go back to the psalms to see where that comes from oh I wrote down the wrong song somebody help me out I, I look to the hills Well, 91 yeah the one I had in mind was I look to the hills from where does my help come from 121 The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Look, here in this passage in Revelation chapter seven, the Lord is their shade. The sun shall not strike them. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Well, what does what does that bring up in your mind? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Look, for the believer, goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives, and then we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mm-hmm. Revelation 21 clearly is using the same sort of imagery. There's, there's obvious correspondence between Revelation 7 and Revelation 21. Again, just confirming that we're, we're at the end of all things here. The Lord's wiping away everybody's tears. We're at the end of a cycle of visions. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, Revelation 21 and verse 3. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The picture here in in the sixth and the seventh seals is the picture of The sufferings of the second and third and fourth and fifth seals being behind us. And being spared from the wrath of the Lamb in the sixth and seventh seals as final judgment comes upon the rest of the earth. And being ushered into our eternal blessedness where God dwells with us. Where all of our tears are wiped away. Where our good shepherd has led us home and we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, what we see in Revelation 6, 7, and 8, the sections that I read for you that I'm expounding for you today, the 6th and the 7th seals, it contains the judgment and vengeance of God at the end of all things. And it contains the fate of God's people. Another way of looking at it is it contains two portraits of the Lamb. You see? Look at it. Look at this passage. The Lamb is doing two things in this section of Scripture. The Lamb is pouring out His wrath upon one set of people. Revelation 6, 16. And the Lamb is shepherding another set of people. Revelation 7, 17. Look, we're all going to have dealings with the Lamb. You may not be a believer. You may belong to another religion. You may belong to no religion at all. You may consider yourself a Christian, but you don't really believe in the literal resurrection of Christ and the literal return of Christ. You just think the Bible is kind of full of some nice morals and whatnot. And you don't ex- actually expect to see Jesus at the end of all things. Look, everyone's going to see Him. Everyone's gonna behold it. There was a uh, little excerpt from the uh, Joe Rogan experience where Theo Vaughn was on, and they were talking about death. Theo Vaughn said, do you believe in that stuff? And Joe Rogan was like, what do you mean, death? <laughs> he said, yeah, you know, like, well, yeah, I believe in death, right? As I've said before, whether you believe in death or not, it's, it's coming. Death is coming upon us all. And it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Just like that question, do you believe in that stuff? Doesn't actually change the objectivity of death. So, do you believe in that stuff? What stuff? The return of Christ, the wrath of the Lamb, you know, the shepherding of the Lamb dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Do you believe in that stuff? Look, it doesn't matter whether you believe in that stuff or not. That stuff is like death. It's real. Whether you believe in it or not, that's what's going down at the end of all things. You will either be under the wrath of the Lamb or you will be under the care of the Lamb when in time and space what we see figuratively presented before us In the sixth and seventh seals comes to pass. Do you know the salvation of the Lamb, which the redeemed sing about in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 10? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you know that salvation? Can you join in that song from the bottom of your heart? Yes and amen. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because if not, as the Scripture says, you're living under the terrible impending prospect of the wrath of the Lamb. What do you have to do to be condemned on that day? Nothing. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. But whoever believes in Christ Jesus, the Son of who was sent into the world will not perish but have everlasting life there are two faiths two ways in which the lamb deals with people which will you experience on that last day